I've got a lot to uh, thank uh, and uh, uh, this uh, congregation for. It's been a wonderful uh, lectureship so far, and I appreciate uh, you inviting me and letting me be a part of uh, uh, this uh, great lectureship. I appreciate all the work that all of the members have uh, gone through. I appreciate the uh, hospitality of uh, Daniel and Hannah. I'm, I sometimes get slipped up and I end up calling them Daryl Hannah. Uh, Daryl and Hannah. So he's not named Daryl, he's Daniel. I had to keep telling myself that. I did that for a few years while he was down there uh, trying to get my uh, thoughts straight on that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've enjoyed their hospitality. We've had wonderful fellowship and uh, really deep discussions last night. Uh, Hannah and I had a bit of a debate on uh, who knew the most about illicit drugs. And in the end, I had to concede that she knew a lot more about illicit drugs than I did. So, um, anyway, so, you know, you have uh, all kinds of subjects that come up during this week that you never expect, but uh, you enjoy. I don't know if I enjoyed that that much. And I also want to thank you for this uh, tie clip as well. Uh, you know, I, I have tie clips and I always go missing. Uh, I probably wouldn't have chosen a fuzzy caterpillar as a tie clip, but, uh, you know, anyway, uh, that's, uh, it's nice to have to uh, keep my ties straight uh, during uh, this uh, particular lesson. And as uh, Daniel mentioned, of course, we've been uh, talking, really going a journey through the Bible and through the uh, scheme of redemption right from the very beginning and really before the foundation of the world, uh, God conceived of this plan. Uh, by which he would be uh, reconciled to uh, man. Man would be reconciled to him, uh, probably a better way to put it. And we've looked at each stage as God is putting the pieces together of that plan uh, down through the centuries. And, uh, of course, uh, that came in the culmination uh, of uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, he was the culmination of that plan when he uh, came to this earth and the, uh, you know, the gospel began to be uh, spoken and uh, Trevor gave us an excellent lesson, of course, on the beginning of that uh, message uh, being uh, preached by, uh, of course, uh, uh, really uh, Jesus and the disciples and so forth. And, uh, of course, well, we uh, see that wonderful ministry of uh, Jesus and uh, the amazing things and the amazing way he taught and the amazing things that he did, uh, you know, it's uh, tremendous when we look at that. In fact, even people, of course, who don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God are amazed at his teaching. And they have to concede that he was uh, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, they would concede, uh, uh, teachers of all times. And so uh, certainly that is true. Uh, whether you believe him to be the Son of God or not. But in this lesson, I hope that if you have doubts about that, uh, those doubts will fade from your mind. Uh, because as we look at the greatest miracle that Jesus did, uh, the miracle of the resurrection from the grave, there is an abundance of evidence to prove that Jesus uh, not only died uh, and lived and not only died, but also was resurrected uh, from the grave. Of course, those first two things are not that remarkable. Uh, living on this earth and dying is something we all do. Uh, but of course, uh, there have not been many people who have been resurrected from the dead, never to die again. In fact, there's only been one, and that is uh, the person whom we're talking about, and that is uh, Jesus Christ. Of course, as we think about the reasons why Jesus came to this earth, and I know many of the previous speakers have already touched upon why Jesus came. I think um, Ian did an excellent job explaining why Jesus had to come uh, to this earth. And, uh, of course, it comes down to the problem of sin. 
Uh, you know, and uh, the consequences of sin is death, as we're told in Romans chapter 6 and verse uh, 23. That is separation. When we think about death, uh, we usually think of it as an end, an end to our physical being. But really, that's not the meaning of death. Death is a separation. When we die physically, of course, the soul separates from the body. And so it's a separation. And when we die spiritually, when we experience that spiritual death, of course, we're separated from God. And, of course, that's going to be throughout eternity uh, if we experience that second death. And uh, certainly none of us want to experience that. We want to do what we have to do in this life to ensure that we don't experience that second death. Um, and so the problem is sin, and that's really fundamentally why Jesus, of course, came into this world. You know, God's law is designed, as we look at it, to uh, protect us, to give us an abundant and fulfilling life, as uh, we read in John chapter 10 and verse 10. I think sometimes people don't think about the law of Christ that way. Of course, um, you know, it defines sin, yes, but it also offers us so much more. Uh, you know, people sometimes say, well, you know, Christians have a really boring life. I don't want to be a Christian because look at all the things that, you know, I'd have to give up that I really enjoy, you know, all of those pleasures. But of course, when they think about those particular pleasures, those pleasures usually bring along with them. And in fact, 100% of the time, not usually, but 100% of the time, they bring with them dire consequences. Um, and so, you know, we think about gambling, we think about a drinking and the list goes on and on. We think about the damage that those things do, not only to the individual, but to society in general. You know, and people think, well, I've got to give these things up. Well, you should for the good of yourself and for everybody else. You know, and so when we think about the law of Christ, when we think about what God forbids us to do, we need to think about it in, in, in the way that, of course, God is trying to protect us. He's trying to give us a happy and content life. And that's the wonderful thing about living the Christian life. You know, people are happier than they've ever been. And they're surprised by that when they begin to live a life for Christ. And so when we break those boundaries, you know, it's really an act of great ingratitude. I can't think of anything more ungrateful than to break or violate the laws of God that are in place there to make us happy and abundant and content in life and prepare us for an eternity in this wonderful realm of heaven. You know, why would we go against that? Why would we thumb our nose in the face of God and refuse to do His will? That's extreme ingratitude for what He's done for us and what He promises to do for us. It's a terrible thing to violate the Word of God. And so I think sometimes we don't get our head around that. And as Ian pointed out in uh, his lesson, of course, God offered up the solution. God is gracious and loving and all of those things. And because man doesn't have a solution for the problem of sin... Well, God offered it up for him. And that, of course, uh, was uh, Christ. He sent his son as a, a vicarious sacrifice uh, for our sins. And we could look at a number of passages uh, that deal with that. Because we've got so much uh, content, I won't uh, read each of these verses. But, you know, I would encourage you to uh, take a note on these verses and read them later. But uh, passages like Romans chapter 3 and verse uh, 25, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse uh, 17... First uh, John chapter 4 and verse 10 and many others that we could uh, reference. And in each of these passages that I mention, uh, Jesus is referred to as the propitiation uh, for our sins. 
Now, propitiation, you might think, well, what does that mean? I, I guess there are various translations of that depending upon the different translation that you use. But it simply means to appease. And, of course, that's what Jesus uh, did. His sacrifice appeases God's uh, need for a, a justice for those uh, sins. He paid the price uh, for our sins. He suffered so that we do not have to. You know, sometimes people think, well, Jesus died on the cross. Yes, that's true, and we'll establish that fact in just a moment, that he definitely did uh, die upon that cross. Well, you think, well, the Romans put thousands of people on the cross. You know, that was a penalty for a lot of common criminals. But Jesus suffered so much more on that cross than any other person had ever done before. He bore the weight of the sins of the world upon his shoulders. Do you know what that feels like? I don't know what that feels like. I can't imagine uh, the kind of agony, the tremendous pressure that would be. I don't know what it feels like to bear the sins of the world upon my shoulder. I can't even begin to imagine that. And so when we think about the suffering of Christ, his suffering was so much more intense than anybody who's ever been put on the cross or suffered in any other way. Uh, to death. And so we have to really learn to think about that and, and learn to appreciate it. I hope we, we will appreciate a little bit more as we think about that. But you know, when we think about the death of Jesus, that's not a fantastic claim. You know, everybody lives and dies who's uh, been a person on this earth. So that's not remarkable. But what is remarkable uh, in the Bible is the claims that Jesus resurrected from the grave. And of course, his resurrection means everything, doesn't it? It means that he's not just a, a fantastic teacher. That he didn't just lay down, you know, these wonderful principles for us to live by. Uh, and of course, if we live by those principles, it's a great way to live. It's not just that. But of course, uh, because of his resurrection, it proves everything about Jesus and everything that he claimed. That he was the Son of God. That he was the propitiation uh, for our sins. That he is our great hope. That we need to put our trust in him. Hallelujah. And so we think about uh, those things when we think about uh, this uh, resurrection. But you know, Paul highlighted the importance of it in uh, Romans, uh, or rather 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Which uh, we sometimes refer to as the great uh, resurrection chapter. And here in verses 1 through 4, he wrote, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which you also are saved. Uh, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried... And rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And so Paul is one of these that makes that a magnificent claim. Of course we see the gospel writers at the end of each of their books. They make this fantastic claim that uh, Jesus rose from the grave early on the uh, morning on the first day of the week. And so he makes that claim. Okay so Paul, uh, what about that claim? Can you back that up? Can you, can you give us evidence that that resurrection actually took place? Well, he goes on to say in verses 12 through 19 concerning this, he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, 
How do some say among you uh, that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith also is empty. Yes, and we are found a false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up in fact. The dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, uh, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep, that is, those who are dead in Christ, have perished. If, this, uh, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. And so Paul's saying, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, what are all of you people doing here this morning? Why are you putting your faith in him? Why are you trusting in him? Because he's a big fraud. And really it nullifies all of his claims that he made. All of the claims that were made about him. And that's what Paul is saying. You know, you trust in him. You live your life according to his will because you believe in this resurrection. And so it's important. And we'll come back to this passage uh, later on, of course, in the lesson as well, as Paul gives a little bit more evidence concerning the resurrection. It'll be important for us to see that. And I think it surprises some people when they realize, or maybe they haven't realized, that there is much evidence that Jesus rose from the grave. We don't have to believe it with a blind faith. Oh, yes, Jesus rose from the grave. You know, I, I believe that, but I've got no evidence to back that up. It's just kind of a blind hope I have, a blind faith I have that he rose from the grave. But we don't have to do that because there is an abundance of evidence that Jesus rose from the grave. Uh, Paul touches upon some of that here in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, but there's other things that we'll uh, consider as well. And so, um, you know, we need to uh, think about uh, each of these evidences and uh, consider them as we think about our faith in Christ. And I hope by the end of this lesson, we have a greater faith in Christ. And if you don't have faith in Christ, then I hope the evidence that presented uh, uh, today that uh, shows that he resurrected from the grave is going to, to give you that faith that you need, that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be. He was the one that all of the prophets of old, and we mentioned some of those throughout this lesson, were looking forward to. That, that Messiah, that Christ, uh, that Savior, He is the one. First, we need to be willing to accept that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually occurred if it is a best explanation for the unusual circumstances that occurred shortly before and after this event was said to take place. So we look at all of those circumstances and those events that surrounded the resurrection and we ask ourselves, what's the best explanation uh, for those, uh, those events? Is it the resurrection of Jesus Christ or is it something else that can explain some of those things that followed, uh, some of those things uh, that uh, is established? And I think there is no theory that even comes close uh, to adequately explaining what happened before and after the death of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. When you think about all of the events that occurred in Jerusalem at this time, what was the cause of that? What are those events, of course, that bring us to this conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, there are three facts that surround the resurrection of Jesus Christ which we need to consider. 
And we look at those three facts and we, we think about them and we think, well, the best explanation for why those events happened is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There can be no other cause for those uh, events that occurred uh, than, of course, the resurrection of uh, Jesus Christ. And so the first fact is that Jesus lived and died. So first, that's the first thing we need to establish. You know, we have a, a skeptics, I guess, if you want to call them that. I think that's uh, too kind of a term. But there are skeptics out there who suggest that Jesus never lived or he might have lived. You know, they'll, they'll concede that. You know, he might have lived, but, you know, he's just sort of this shadowy figure in history. No, he's not. You know, of course, we've got the, the first-hand witnesses of Jesus' life in the Bible, and there's no reason to doubt them. You know, uh, normally when I was uh, trained in history, we looked at those primary witnesses to the life of Christ, like, of course, uh, Matthew and John. Uh, these were men who accompanied Jesus uh, during his ministry. They knew him personally. And, of course, when they write about him, then, of course, we have to take it very seriously. They're primary uh, witnesses. But people discredit, of course, the Bible. You can't take the Bible as, a, as you know, um, uh, an evidence that Jesus lived. Well, we don't have to. Okay, let's put the Bible aside. Let's look at extra biblical evidence. And there's plenty of it. We don't have time, of course, to get into all of the extra biblical evidence, all of the ancient writers who testified that Jesus lived, who were not Christians. In fact, some of them hated Christianity. But they still admitted that Jesus lived. I think one of the strongest uh, testimonies is uh, by a historian, a Roman historian, at the beginning of the second century named Tacitus. And he essentially states the same facts as the gospel writers. That Jesus was uh, put to death by a Pontius Pilate, who was then the procurator of uh, Judea. And, uh, of course, he was crucified. And so uh, Tacitus, of course, confirms those facts. That Jesus lived, it was a given. Everybody knew that Jesus lived. Everybody knew in Tacitus' day that he was a historical figure. Nobody questioned it. And so that's what Tacitus just points out. You know, he's a Roman historian. He doesn't like Christianity. He hates Christianity, in fact. He's not trying to support uh, this Christian religion. He thinks it's a plague upon the empire. But he admits that Jesus lived. So no one can dispute that fact. There are many others that we could quote. We could quote Josephus, Flavius Josephus, the first century Jewish historian. Again, he was not a Christian, but he testifies to the fact that Jesus also lived. There are many others, of course, we don't have time to, to think about that. So there's no doubt that uh, Jesus lived. The second truth, of course, is that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was discovered empty. And I think when we think about that, uh, there's no doubt about that. Of course, Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 6, going back to uh, this chapter. He says there were 500 witnesses who, of course, had seen or heard the resurrected Christ. So there were 500 who could give a testimony to this fact. And he's telling the Corinthian brethren, he says, look, he's using this as evidence. If you don't believe me, then go ask one of these brethren. Many of them would still be alive. You could consult with them. They were witnesses to that. You know, if you came into a court, of ca court and you uh, put down a case and you had 500 witnesses to back up uh, your case, you're in pretty good shape. And so Paul is putting that out as evidence. I've got 500 witnesses uh, that uh, testify to that. But of course, also, we have the witnesses on the day of Pentecost. 
You say, were they, were they witnesses to the empty tomb? Yes, they were. Because we see Jesus, or rather Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he's there in Jerusalem. He preaches the gospel to them in Acts chapter 2. And how many respond to that gospel? He preaches about the resurrection of Christ, and 3,000 are converted to Christ. Well, if Jesus hasn't resurrected, why did those 3,000 convert to Christ? They could have gone out of the city of Jerusalem, and they could have gone to that tomb. It wasn't very far away. And they could have said, Peter's a liar. That tomb is still sealed. He's still in there. He's not resurrected. But they knew that Peter wasn't lying. They knew that tomb was empty. They could go there very easily from Jerusalem. It was just outside the city. So 3,000 of them were convinced of that. And so they were a testimony as well uh, to uh, the empty tomb. You know, and so the resurrection of Jesus Christ really is, is the best way to explain these uh, really uh, um, irrefutable facts. Uh, and so um, we think about it from that perspective. Well, let's consider the, 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 the um, first, of course, of our, our well-established uh, facts in more detail as we think about uh, uh, Jesus and his resurrection. In Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 11... Mark wrote, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, of whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been uh, with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. How do we know that the testimony of these women were reliable? Even the disciples didn't believe them. And uh, Trevor, of course, touched upon that. Uh, women's, uh, the testimony of women was... Uh, not really considered to be accurate by uh, first century Jewish culture. Uh, they were, uh, I guess, uh, sexist in that regard. Uh, and we'll mention a quote a little bit later on. So even the disciples uh, doubted, of course, the testimony of these witnesses until, of course, they had gone to the tomb themselves and seen it themselves that Jesus was no longer there. Peter and John, of course, the first of these uh, male disciples to uh, rush to the tomb uh, to see that. Uh, you know, and as uh, Trevor pointed out yesterday, this lends a bit of an authenticity uh, to this account. You know, if you're, you're uh, writing a fake account and you're trying to convince people that uh, events occurred that actually didn't occur, you wouldn't have included the testimony of women because uh, certainly women were not considered to be uh, reliable witnesses. But he's just stating the facts. The first people who came to the empty tomb were women. And so... You know, he has to mention that because that's a fact. He might have excluded that fact if he's just faking this story or telling a tale uh, because it really doesn't help his case, really, uh, in the minds of first century Jews. But it shows that this is an authentic count and he can't, of course, uh, dismiss it. And so we see in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, the male disciples, of course, confirm that. Second, we need to consider that even the enemies of Jesus Christ admitted that the tomb was empty. They had to, of course, explain it in some way, and they came up with a rather feeble excuse. In Matthew, in Matthew chapter 28, 
verses 11 through 15, uh, Jews, of course, who opposed Christianity, who attempted to re refute the uh, claims of this bodily resurrection, say it said or came up with the story that the disciples stole his body. And we read about that in uh, Matthew 28, 11 through 15. It says, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this uh, saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. They knew that this excuse was pretty weak. It was pretty feeble. But, you know, these Roman soldiers, their guard, their lives were on the line because they had failed in their duty. And, of course, typically the failure uh, was death. <laughs> if you failed, of course, as a Roman guard, uh, then, of course, you would be put to death. And so this certainly was a great concern for them. Uh, they don't go back to the Roman officials. They go first to the Jewish leadership, you know, because <laughs> they'd be instantly executed for this failure. And so, you know, they said, well, just can't say the disciples came and, and stole his body, you know, while you slept. And that's pretty weak, too. <laughs> you know, so I wouldn't buy that if I was the, uh, the leader, the centurion of these, this particular guard. I would say that's rubbish. <laughs> that's nonsense. You shouldn't have been asleep. Uh, you know, you, sh you should have been awake. Uh, you know, you're still the penalty is death. <laughs> you know. And so he says, well, if you say this, then, then we'll go to bat for you. So we'll, we'll, we'll try and uh, speak a word of favor, uh, you know, in, in the officials' ears so that uh, uh, we'll try to dissuade them, essentially, from putting you to death. And so this was their explanation. It was weak. It was feeble. But it's the best that they could come up with. They knew that it was weak and that it was feeble. And so they didn't come up with an alternative explanation. Well, what about their explanation? What about the disciples coming and, and sneaking in and, and taking Jesus' body by night in order to fake uh, this concept that Jesus or give the impression that Jesus actually rose from the grave? Well, you think about a well-armed Roman guard. And typically when you see these pictures of uh, you know, the, the Romans guarding the tomb of Jesus, how many guards are on duty? Two, usually two, maybe a few more. But a guard was much bigger than that. When you're talking about a guard, you're not, you're not talking about one or two men. You know, you're talking uh, somewhere in the range of 20 to 50 men. Heavily armed, heavily trained Roman soldiers. How many of these Jewish disciples, fishermen and so forth, do you think could overcome a heavily armed, well-trained Roman guard? None of them. They wouldn't have a hope. They would be slaughtered in the attempt. They wouldn't stand a chance. And so, again, this is a very weak excuse, you know. And so they had to say, well, while you were asleep, I, I find, you know, it'd be very difficult to roll back a big stone and uh, try to keep the Roman guards sleeping while you're doing that, making all this racket and noise in the process, I would imagine. And so, you know, the Jewish leadership essentially were hostile witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. They admitted the tomb was empty, but they had to come up with some feeble explanation, of course, that uh, really didn't hold water. And so I guess you would view them as hostile witnesses. And the fact that we come back to that it was discovered by women. We already touched upon this point and went over this point. Uh, but uh, this, of course, shows that this event is authentic. 
uh, Flavius Josephus, that first century historian, the Jewish historian that I mentioned earlier, he says, But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and the boldness of their sex. So he gives us uh, the impression of what uh, the first century Jewish men thought of the testimony of women. Not much. But Mark mentions them, that they were witnesses to this, and their witness, of course, their testimony was backed up by uh, Peter and John and others, of course, who came and saw that empty tomb in those early stages. The empty tomb, of course, is a powerful testimony uh, to the resurrection uh, in ancient times. What about modern scholars? We talked about ancient uh, things that are going on there. Modern scholars have also tried to explain the empty tomb because it's a real dilemma for people uh, because if you don't believe in God, you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you don't believe the claims of Jesus, you don't want the resurrection to exist. You don't want it to be established as an actual fact. And so we've seen uh, they've come up with a number of arguments in order to explain it. Uh, and so they say, uh, essentially, that uh, they suggest, first of all, that maybe the Jews or Romans took away the body of Jesus. You know, the tomb's empty, it's empty today. Maybe the Romans or the Jews uh, took away the body of Jesus. And that led so many to believe that Jesus had resurrected because they can't deny that Christianity started in Jerusalem and that obviously thousands quickly converted to Christianity. And so their explanation, well, was these people believed... Because, you know, they, they actually believed that the Jews or the Romans took away the body of Jesus. But that was counterproductive to the Jewish leadership and the Romans' objectives, wasn't it? Why would they want to do that? They wanted to keep him in the tomb. Why would they pull his body out of the, out of the tomb? That would be ridiculous. And if they did that, if they foolishly did that, then they could have just produced the body of Jesus and they could have squashed Christianity at its very beginning. They could have said, well, no, no, don't you, don't you believe he resurrected? Here's the body right here. You can have a look at it. He's still dead. So even if they did take the body, I have no idea why they would do that. There's no motive for that. But they could have put it on display and they could have said, nope, there it is. And none of these people would have believed Peter on the day of Pentecost. In fact, I doubt Peter would have even preached that uh, lesson on the day of Pentecost because he wouldn't have believed either. He would have believed, as many others, that they were a fraud. So that particular theory doesn't really hold water. What about the disciples taking the body of Jesus and sort of, you know, uh, to give this impression that Jesus had resurrected from the grave? Again, we look at motive. You know, we think about the early disciples. You know, was Christianity good for them? Well, we talked about Christianity being good for you. But physically, it wasn't good for those first century Christians, was it? You know, these people for preaching Christ... What happened to them? They were imprisoned, they were beaten, they were put to death. And we know for the first uh, three centuries or so of the spread of Christianity that Christians were treated in the most vile manner. You know, they were tied to post and uh, lit up, you know, as torches in the night, covered in tar and lit up. They were crucified, uh, they were died in some of the most horrible ways. What would motivate them to uh, perpetuate this fraud? If these are the consequences, why would they do that? Why wouldn't they, like the Jewish uh, fellows, like Peter and so forth, why didn't they just fall back in line uh, with the uh, Jewish leadership and say, we were wrong, sorry about that. We'll just go back to the way that we were doing, observing the law of Moses and, and waiting for the real Messiah. 
They put their lives on the line because they believe this. And so there's no motive for them to steal the body of Jesus because if they'd done so, then they would have known that he was a fraud and they wouldn't have sacrificed those things uh, for them. And so uh, we look at uh, these two explanations and they really don't hold water, but they're not plausible, are they, explanations for this. Jesus must have risen from the grave. Then we have the testimony of disciples, and we've touched upon that, of course. You, if you've got one reliable uh, witness in the stands when you're presenting a case in court, that's enough. But uh, Paul mentions 500, and of course we see some of those men mentioned specifically, the apostles and uh, many other disciples, of course. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses uh, 3 through 6, he mentions that 500 witnesses for them. And so there was a great testimony uh, to the fact that Jesus arose from the grave. While some other modern scholars have suggested, well, maybe they were just protecting their religion. Why would they do that? That's one thing. When you know that the man who started their religion is a fraud and that everything he said was a big lie. Well, you could say, you know, they say, well, the the early apostles lied. The disciples lied about uh, seeing the resurrected Lord. Or they hallucinated. There was a big hallucination or the alternate explanation, they really saw the resurrected Lord. And of course, they lied. We looked at the motive of that. There is no motive for that. Mass hallucination, that's a really, that's a big stretch. You can imagine one or two people uh, hallucinating about an event. But you know, you're talking about thousands of people. Uh, no, that's not, that's not a viable explanation uh, for uh, what we see. And we can see, of course, uh, you know, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost and later on, uh, thousands more are converting to Christ. Well, there's much more that we could uh, say concerning uh, this subject. And so, but because of time constraints, of course, we'll come to the conclusion. I think we've presented enough evidence to show that Jesus certainly lived. And he died, as do all men. And he resurrected from the grave. There's really no doubt about that. It's the only logical explanation for the events that surrounded the death of Jesus and surrounded the events that followed uh, the death of Jesus. And so uh, we need to put our faith in those facts because I think they're accurate. Well, what consequences does it have? We talked about, of course, all of the teachings of Jesus would be true. Every claim that he made was true. Of course, there's a lot of claims that Jesus made. There's a lot of teachings that he did. <laughs> he claimed to be God in passages like John chapter 8, to verses 58 to 59. John chapter 14, verses 8 through 11. The list goes on where he claimed a deity. He claimed a godhood. What does his resurrection show? He's God. He's God. He's the one sent from heaven. He's the propitiation for our sins. There's no doubt about it. He's the one all of those Old Testament prophets were looking for. He's the one David prophesied about in Psalm chapter 22 that Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 53. And of course, we could mention many, many others. Uh, Prophecies, of course, in the Old Testament, we've touched upon a few. All of those things that uh, Jesus claimed were true. He was God. He was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. And this great event proves it to us. 
But you know, we think about one of his final statements, or a statement that was made, I shouldn't say final statements, but one of the statements that was made uh, during his ministry that's recorded for us in John chapter 12 and verse 48. This is also true. <laughs> if Jesus was who he claimed to be, then this is also true. Let's just go over as we look at this last verse uh, in the lesson, John chapter 12 and verse uh, 48. He says, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. That was one of the claims of Jesus. His word will judge us in the last day. That's a fact. He was who he claimed to be. He was the Son of God. Everything that he said was true. And one day he's coming back to sit in judgment. We need to be prepared for that. As he mentions here in the text, you know, the, the first time he didn't come, of course, to, to sit in judgment. That's uh, reserved for later, his second coming. The first time he came, of course, was to redeem man, to die on the cross, to pay that price uh, for sin for mankind. But the next time Jesus comes back, it's going to be to judge and judge by his words. He's going to judge us by this. We better know it, we better study it, we better apply it, we better prepare ourselves for it. In Acts chapter 2, when uh, Peter preached that great uh, gospel sermon with uh, the strongest faith that he could have, uh, that Jesus had resurrected from the grave, he convinced those 3,000 people on that day that in fact that was a, a, a fact that that had occurred. They knew it had occurred as well. And so it says that they were cut to the heart in verse 36. And they, they pleaded with Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what have we done? What can we do uh, to uh, cover the horrible crime that we've committed? They've put to death the Son of God. And what does Peter respond? That's the answer. That's the answer for those people. It's the answer for us today. What does he tell them to do? In verse 38. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We see in verse 41 that they did that. And then God added them to the glorious institution of the church, which we pointed out earlier, uh, Christ died for. Those who are baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, as Peter stated there in verse 38, were added by God to the glorious church. The church is made up of the saved of God, saved of Christ. And so, this morning, I hope you will seriously consider that. If you're not a child of God, then think about the evidence, consider the evidence, and so, uh, and ponder over it, because your soul is on the line. And we're concerned about your soul. We want you to respond uh, to the gospel. We want you to submit to Christ before that great day of judgment that we've read about. Thank you for your attention this morning.